primary care knowledge boost, chronic pain. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Thank you all for joining us again today. Um, this episode is all about um, chronic pain. Um, we have um, Dr. Mahinda Chinchokler from um, the Manchester and Salford Pain Centre. He's a consultant anaesthetist and um, a specialist in chronic pain management as well. Yeah, and, and we were really happy that he could join us for this episode because getting his insight about managing chronic pain was really, really useful. So we start with um, the big question, what is pain and what is chronic pain, um, which was a really interesting place to start, actually. So we go through a uh, an example case of a, a lady in her 40s with chronic lower back pain, and um, he talks us through his stepwise approach to assessing the pain and managing the pain uh, yes yeah, so um, we got a lot out of it um, I think it's quite a nice deep dive into chronic pain and, and we hope you enjoy all right so I know we've kind of covered this already but can you start with uh, an introduction to yourself please and um, yeah, and yeah. a bit about your role as well okay so my name is Mahindra Chincholkar I'm the clinical director of the Manchester and Salford Pain Centre uh, I've been a consultant there for about 12 years Apart from that, I'm also a council member of the British Pain Society. So a bit about the pain clinic itself. It's one of the first pain clinics in the country, and it is the birthplace of the British Pain Society. So we are an integrated acute and chronic pain service, uh, an interdisciplinary team with psychologists, nurses, physiotherapists. So we all work together as as a team. Oh, so that's a full MDT. It yeah. is. It is a full MDT. Oh, wow. And yeah, and historical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we're well placed to talk about pain today, which is what we're here for. We um, we wanted to pick your brains um, and get lots of good information about chronic pain. Um, but we thought up the top that we might just ask you what pain is to start with, if you would mind talking us through that. Yeah, of course. So you have the standard IASP definition. That's the International Association for Study of Pain. So they define pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Um, What they emphasize is that pain is a very personal experience and there are a lot of factors which influence how we perceive pain. So there's biological, psychological and social factors, which we now recognize as the biopsychosocial model of pain. Now, there are lots of kind of words in there, so we can break it down into individual bits. So a really useful and an important way of thinking about pain is to distinguish between pain and nociception. Often many clinicians assume that they're both the same. So when I ask my trainees to talk me through the pain pathway, you know, the standard answer I get is when there is tissue damage, there is release of inflammatory mediators. Uh, these mediators then sensitize the pain sensors, the nociceptors, and then you have, have messages going to the spinal cord, the thalamus, and to the brain. But that is not pain. That is not the pain pathway. That is just nociception. So when we talk about nociception, it just means neural encoding of noxious stimuli. It's an interesting distinction. Yes, Uh, it is very important to make this distinction. Now, when you talk of pain pathways, uh, there are two distinct pain pathways going to the brain. So there is one pathway, uh, which is called the sensory discriminatory pathway, which tells the brain where the messages are coming from. And then you have the motivational effective pathway, which goes to the emotional center of the pain. This is why ISP has defined pain as both a sensory and an emotional experience. So when does it actually become pain? What exactly is pain? So what the brain does is look at all these messages which are coming to it, and it tries to make sense of it. How does it make sense of it? 
So it uses past experience, information from other sources, all of this to make a judgment of what these messages means, and then creates this pain experience for you. It then projects this pain to where the messages are coming from. What it means is that pain, like any other perception, is simply your brain's best guess of what's going on. If you think about it, your brain is in this dark cavity and it's relying on all the sensors to make to make sense of what all the information coming in. So what it is doing is it's just guessing what's going on in the tissues based on what the message says that it's getting. This is what pain is. So when we get taught, like you were saying about nociception and that distinction, yeah. we have alpha fibers, I think, and C fibers, and yeah. there's like fast and slow pain. So is that all in that nociception category? Yes. Yeah. So that is just nociception. The tissues have been damaged yeah. and that has produced messages going up to the brain. It's then the brain's job to make sense of those messages and create the experience of pain for you. Now, pain is really weird. And as an example of how weird pain can be, uh, you might have heard of this. There's a, there was a case report which was published in the British Medical Journal. Essentially, the gist is that there was this builder who presented to a &E, So he had jumped onto a wooden plank with a nail kind of protruding through it. And the nail went through and through his boot. This builder required really strong analgesia and sedation, even to allow him to be examined. And when they took his boot out, they found that the nail had gone in between his toes. This sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so what probably happened is when the nail went in between his toes, he felt a sensation of something passing through. So you have sensory receptors in the man's body, which reported to the brain that something's happening. His brain then perceived this potential threat to his safety. And it's, it's used context to determine what's going on. So the builder obviously saw the nail protruding through his boot. And with prior knowledge, his brain knew that this is a bad thing. Yeah. I'm assuming that all his co-workers were horrified. He's looking at the faces of his co-workers um, and all this other data. So visual cues, prior knowledge, using all this information, the brain then made a guesstimate of what's going on. And all these thoughts, beliefs, emotions, panic, fear, all mingled together, made the brain think that he is in danger and therefore created the pain experience for him, even though there was no tissue damage. This is, of course, a, an extreme example, but it is, this is crucial to understanding pain in a clinical context. There is a, no absolute co-relationship between the experience of pain and tissue damage. It's really interesting, yeah. It's so interesting. What a great orientation um, to, to pain to set us up for the rest of the chat. Um, I guess the next logical question then to ask you is um, what the definition of chronic pain is um, compared to just generally pain. So chronic pain is, uh, is defined as pain lasting for more than three months. Now, an important thing to recognize that chronic pain is not just merely an, a temporal extension of acute pain. It's a completely different entity. Unfortunately, when we think of chronic pain, it does not fit into a shared notion of the nature of pain itself. So when we think about pain, we think it's, it's a transient symptom maybe because of some injury or some disease, and it's going to go away with time. And there must be some biological source. However, with many chronic pain conditions, there is no injury. And it is maintained by other factors which are removed from the initial cause. So the things like central sensitization, neuroimmune, neuroimmune signaling, and so on. When you think of acute pain, acute pain generally is a, a warning signal. So if you touch a fire, for example, what will happen? And you pull your finger away. Absolutely. So <laughs> pain will make you withdraw your hand. Yeah. And you will not do it again. 
So acute pain has a protective function, not just for the present, but also for the future. So it's a learning system. Another example, if you break your arm, fall down, break your arm, what would you do? Shield it, cry out, get help. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you would keep your arm still, not allow it to move. Uh, you might stop anyone from touching it. You might seek help, have surgery. And eventually when your bones heal, you will start moving your hand freely again. So what pain has essentially done is that it has modified your behavior. Every change in behavior allows your body to recover. In chronic pain, however, there is often no injury. So it is no longer a warning signal. But if you introduce the same adaptations, so if you stop doing things, if you stop moving, like in acute pain, this is unhelpful. What will happen is your muscles will start getting weaker, more stiffer, patients become deconditioned. So patients enter this vicious cycle whereby pain makes them do less. And because they are doing less, they're getting weaker and stiffer, which in turn causes more pain. Mm. Patients often worry about what pain means, which means they're not going to do activities which, which are painful. And of course, if they have pre-existing psychological issues such as anxiety and depression, it alters how they perceive pain. And of course, they don't have the motivation to engage with rehabilitation. This is how they end up becoming disabled. Um, another point I'd like to make is I'm, I'm very reluctant to call pain as chronic at three months, although that is the definition. Because I think there are negative connotations to the word chronic. And we know from experience that, say, after an injury, it can take a long time for patients to get better, up to two years. So, if, so from my perspective, if the pain has lasted for a couple of years, that's when I will call it chronic. But that's not the standard definition. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So much food for thought already. And I'm sort of thinking about the case that we're about to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, but also just in, in general, it's um, yeah, it's just fascinating, isn't it? Um, so if we go through the case and then sort of try and work through your approach to to a case of what a lot of people will be familiar with this type of patient so it's an amalgamation of a few different people really um so we've got a 48 year old louise that we're going to talk about um she's got a long-standing history of back pain um, it started when she was in her 20s um and it was initially just here and there quite intermittent but over the years it's become more persistent and uh, so she gets it every day and night now um, so she describes times where it's not quite as bad and then other times where it's really acutely flaring up and when it does really acutely flare up she takes to her bed um, so every so often every, even every few weeks the flare-ups can come on and she's sort of bed bound for about three or four days um, she gets some radiation to, of the pain into her thighs, but it doesn't extend down below the knee. There's no bladder or bowel dysfunction. She can perform her activities of daily living, but her function is generally quite poor and it's really affected her quality of life. Uh, in the last year, she started using walking sticks to help her mobilize when she's not in bed. Uh, she used to work as a cleaner, um, but she stopped several years ago because of the pain. Her medications, she currently takes Zomorph, uh, 40 milligrams twice a day, Oromorph, 5 to 10 milligrams for breakthrough pain. Um, she, she takes that generally about three to four times per day now. Uh, despite taking those medications, her pain's still not well controlled and she's becoming increasingly more restricted at home. Where we've known her for a long time, um, we know that the pain's really affecting her mood. She takes fluoxetine for depression, um, but she's not really found 
her mood's particularly altered by it. Uh, in the past, when we looked through, she's had MRI scans uh, a couple of years ago that showed some wear and tear changes at multiple levels, a couple of disc bulges, but no spinal cord compression, nothing too concerning. She's generally very concerned and she often feels like um, people are missing something with her back pain and dismissing her. So probably quite a familiar scenario, um, but using that case case as an example, can you talk us through your approach to to Louise and her pain? Yes, so this is a typical patient with non-specific low back pain who has become disabled with time, uh, who's on a shared load of medications and there are lots of psychological and social factors. So first of all, it I have to say it takes a lot of time to take a good pain history and to engage patients. And I'm well aware that in, in primary care, you have 10 minutes uh, and it's not possible to carry out a detailed history and examination. So what I would suggest is for such complex patients, you might want to bring patients back in mm-hmm. uh, or maybe have a longer uh, longer session. So in, in terms of the history, uh, it's your typical pain history will include how the pain started, um, what other people have said about the diagnosis, the prognosis, whether the condition is improving or deteriorating, and what impact it's having in terms of function, on the sleep, mood, relationships, and so on, um, what the patients understand by the pain, and what the patient really wants from the consultation. Now, there is a lot to cover, um, but when you're framing the consultation, think about what you're trying to achieve. Think about what your purpose is. So our goal is to help patients improve their function and therefore their quality of life. Now that can be through medications, interventions, physiotherapy, psychology. One method of kind of framing your consultation is to think of a five-step model. And this is based on the work by Dave Moen. Dave Moen is an Australian physiotherapist and he's the author of this book called Permission to Move. So the first step is to ensure that the patient is safe to move. And once you established that the pain is not due to anything dangerous, then you must communicate that it's safe to move. You can then assess the role of medications, talk about the limitations of medications in chronic pain, and finally, take steps to encourage the patient to move. That's that's a really clear framework. Um, can you talk us through that in a sort of stepwise manner, if you don't mind? So uh, in the first step, we are asking, is the pain due to something dangerous? Which means you're looking for red flags, so things like bladder and bowel dysfunction, progressive neurological weakness, subtle anesthesia. And of course, you will do a physical examination to, to rule out anything dangerous. What this first step allows you to do is to make a constructive diagnosis. Now, we know that in most musculoskeletal conditions, especially in, in patients like these with non-specific back pain, we can't really identify a cause. Yeah. But with a traditional model of medicine, once you've done the history and examination, we are encouraged to think of identifying a cause that can be treated. But these patients are anything but traditional. Yeah. What we are trying to do is we are trying to make a diagnosis that it is safe for the patient to move. We are not trying to determine an exact cause of the patient's symptoms, but we are trying to encourage patients to engage with activity by reassuring them that activity is safe for them. Mm-hmm. So we are trying to move away from what is wrong to what can we do to make things better. Okay. Kind of positive framing. Yeah. yeah. So once you've reassured yourself that uh, it is the pain is non-specific, it's not due to anything dangerous, the next step is to communicate to the patient that, it's, that it is safe to move. Now, how you communicate with the patient, that can have a huge impact, both positive or negative. How patients perceive their pain will determine how they respond to it. So our goal is to give patients a new way of understanding pain 
and to make them feel confident and, and safe to move. Now, you need to find out what the patient thinks about the pain itself. Are they worried about it? What do they think it means? Because that will determine how they're going to respond. So questions you could ask are things like, what do you think is going on? How do you think we can help? What have others told you about what the pain means? So if patients are worried about their pain, if they think there is something dangerous going on, that when they move, it hurts and they're causing themselves harm, they're not going to move. What their brain will do is to prioritize these pain messages and will drive their attention to it. And this is what leads to that vicious cycle. So my method is uh, I would start by assuring them that that after examining you and after listening to your to, your, to the history, I'm fairly confident that the pain is not due to anything dangerous. Um, it's not always possible to identify the cause of the pain. But I know that the pain is intrusive and it is affecting your quality of life. But it is not dangerous. When you move and it hurts, it doesn't mean that you're harming yourself. In fact, movement is good for you. This simple statement, I think, can be life-changing. So I've had patients uh, who've, who've been worried. So one particular patient I remember um, who's had pain for years and, and was worried, searching for answers. Why is he still in pain? And after my explanation, he said, well, this, this is the first time somebody has said this to me. Now I know that it's not dangerous. I can just get on with my life. I can see the importance and the power that that would have. Yeah. You also need to offer an explanation. So patients are willing to accept that, that we can't always identify the cause of the pain, but they want to know why they are still in pain. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to spend hours and hours trying to explain pain physiology, uh, but you could explain how pain can exist without any underlying problems. Now, this is a very complex concept and, and patients can fail to grasp it. And there are a number of analogies that you can use, but we use the analogy of a fire alarm. So the fire alarm should normally go off only when there's a fire uh, to warn everybody of danger. But sometimes fire alarms can become faulty and they can go off even without when there is no fire. Similarly, the pain messaging system should only become active when there is some damage, like it happens when there is acute pain. But in chronic pain, there is no damage. So Essentially, the pain messaging system is like a faulty fire alarm system. So it's going on, going off, even when there is nothing to protect. So in chronic pain, back pain, for example, I say, what this means is that your nervous system is making your back muscles go into spasm because your brain still thinks that it needs to protect your spine, stop you from moving. And this is making the pain worse and making you do less. So what can you do about it? We can't make the pain go away, but if you're able to start gentle exercise, if you can reactivate those muscles, then it can make you stronger so that you can do more despite your pain. And when you start using your muscles, we often find that the muscles start relaxing. They don't spasm as much, which means hopefully the pain will be somewhat easier. So that's the explanation side of things. Um, what, where do we go from there? Another thing I, I wanted to talk about is investigations. Um, many patients will uh, want to have a, a scan of the back. And most patients with non-specific pain don't need any kind of investigations. But uh, I completely understand that some patients need reassurance and they will not be reassured unless they have had a scan. I see this very often. The patient gets an MRI scan report and they look at all these complex words, degeneration, disbulging, and so on. And both patients and clinicians attribute their symptoms to these changes. But there is very good evidence that all these changes are normal. There is no correlationship between what you see on the MR scan and the symptoms. Well, no absolute correlationship between what changes that you see on the MR scan and the patient's symptoms. Many of these changes are normal. And even if there are changes, such as spinal stenosis, for example, which can cause neurogenic pain, we still recommend exercise. 
because activity will still help patients improve their function. And in, in most cases, it is not dangerous for patients to move, even if there is something on the MR scan. I guess the other tricky bit that you come into, um, as well as investigations, is about um, medications, how you go about discussing those, addressing them um, and working forward with them. So do you have any advice and tips around that? Medications, unfortunately, do not work as well in chronic pain. And I think when you, uh, when a patient, so when you see a patient, you are tempted to start them on medications or to increase it. I think that's part of our training. That's what we are trained to do. We want to help patients. So it is quite easy to fall into that trap. We know that medications such as opioids and carbapentinoids are, they are unhelpful, especially in chronic primary pain. In fact, the NICE guidelines, which were published uh, recently, they recommend that you shouldn't really be using these drugs in chronic, in chronic primary pain. So chronic primary pain is a pain where there is no known anatomical or physiological cause. And the vast majority of chronic pain is chronic primary pain. Uh, this patient, for example, is uh, on a fairly high dose of opiates. So 40 milligrams BD of Zomorph and Oromorph on, on top of yeah, it. Yeah. But she's still in pain and she's not functioning. And clearly the medication is not helping. Another thing I've, I've seen is uh, if opioids are not helping, then patients are then started on carbapentinoids. Uh, unfortunately, carbapentinoids do not work either. And this combination, in fact, can be dangerous. Yeah, there was a uh, medicines alert about it a few years ago, wasn't there, that the combination had been associated with increased death. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah, so I think it was 2016 when the MHRA came out with the first guidance that was for gabapentin. So we know that gabapentin by itself can cause respiratory depression. And when you combine that with opioids, the risk is even higher. And this risk is significantly higher in frail patients. And I think a few years later, 2020, I think, there was uh, another warning for pregabalin. Yeah, yes, it's definitely, it's on It's on there. It's, it's a worry, definitely. And there's a, yeah. a fair amount of patients that do have that combination, really. When gabapentinoids were first introduced, the idea was that uh, it will reduce the use of opiates and they will reduce the adverse effects from opiates. But what we have actually seen is that not only has opioid prescribing gone up, gabapentinoid prescribing has gone up as well. And both of them are being prescribed together. So using gabapentinoids has not actually reduced the opioid problem. Yes, not great. No. no. So thinking about Louise then, um, with her high levels of opiates, um, and the temptation might be out there for a clinician to add in a gabapentinoid. Absolutely. What, what would you do? What would be your advice for how to address the management of her pain? So we know what's required here. We know that we need to reduce this opiates. It's how do you go about doing it? Now, there is little point in saying that uh, we need to reduce your opiates because they're bad for you and they're addictive. It's not going to work because humans are very poor at appreciating risks that they cannot see. What is important is to convey how the reduction might help improve their pain because that's what they're looking for. So you could say that, you know, the medications are clearly not helping because you're still in pain. And, and then you need to give an explanation as to why that is. So this is because your body has become used to the painkillers because you've been on them for so long that your body is no longer responding to it. So the best way forward is to actually start weighing down on the opiates to allow your body to recover so that it can respond to the painkillers again. So if, what it means that if in the future you need painkillers, for example, when you've had surgery, the pain medications are going to work. Now the counter argument is that, well, I'm in pain all the time, so I need the painkillers. Yeah. Uh, I once missed a dose and then the pain was really, really bad. I see that quite often. 
surely the morphine must be doing something the one i sort of struggle to have much of a or that sometimes get gets me when i'm having these conversations mm-hmm. is um it, it's not that it's not helping um yeah. it is actually helping a little bit even though often it's kind of during a discussion about how the meds aren't working or yeah. they're not working as well it's like no no they i still need them i still Hmm. Yeah, rely on them but i want something more yeah and um, yeah. so it's kind of that if we take them down no, no that will make it worse yeah. there's a real reluctance to yeah there is a real reluctance yeah. so there are many ways of kind of addressing this issue but you need to target the perception that the opioids are working so what typically i would say is the opioids are not actually working they're not doing anything for you you just feel that they are working because if you miss a dose or you reduce the, the opioids then the pain becomes worse that is actually a withdrawal reaction it doesn't mean that it was working for you but if you reduce your painkillers slowly yes the pain will get worse because your body is reacting to it but this will settle down in a day or two maybe a bit longer but eventually your pain will reach down to a, to a to a baseline and then you can start reducing the drug again now it might take you a long time to to reduce your painkillers might take months but if you're doing it this way then it won't flare up your pain as much and eventually you might reach a point where you don't really need the painkillers now i must emphasize that um i'm not saying that medications don't work at all and that they have no role but what we do know is that if you're taking opioids on a regular basis you will get tolerance um this patient for example is on modified release opiates so her body is being exposed to opioids all the time and tolerance develops very quickly within a few months they no longer respond to the opiates in my view it is acceptable to use quick release opiates a small dose as and when required so i have patients who maybe take one or two doses of codeine or or tramadol just one or two doses a week just when they having a flare up or if they are going to do something that they know is going to cause pain they're going for a long walk for example um i think it is acceptable to use painkillers in this way so you're not using it for your daily pain but you're using it as a tool to help you improve your function but but the, the, again uh, for chronic primary pain i would say do not use any opiates or carbapentinoids at all okay so when would you use the prn the you know couple of times a week it it depends on the individual patient so if you know the patients are they are quite amenable they're not going to start taking the painkillers every day yeah um they're quite sensible with their painkillers and they're going to use it very sparingly then then i think it's acceptable practice but if you are unsure I, i wouldn't prescribe opiates yeah okay yeah individual approach it's an individual approach yes um so in practice when i've had scenarios before where we've had um sort of reassuring examinations or reassuring test results um and you're sort of having those conversations about it's safe to move there's no damage going on um you can still see a reluctance for people what kind of approaches do you find have been helpful to to sort of make people feel more confident in in helping them to move so first of all with any rehabilitation approach it is very important that patients are engaged otherwise it's it's not going to work sometimes patients simply need time to process what has been said and it's helpful to bring them back again and um not go through the same same process again but see at what point they are whether they have come to an acceptance that their pain is chronic i think this is also very important it is important to be honest with patients and state that their pain is not going to go away and there is a general reluctance to state that and often when patients come to the pain clinic this is the first time that they've heard that their pain is not going to go away 
they're going to have to live with it for the rest of their life. Saying that it's not going to go away can sometimes help patients accept their condition. So what we say is that, yes, it is chronic, it's not going to go away, and we know medications do not help, but what we can do is help you move forward from here. So we can't do a lot about uh, the pain intensity as such, but what we can do is help you deal with the knock-on effects that the pain is having. So that's in terms of your function or in terms of how the pain is affecting your mood. Okay, yeah. So we're not looking at pain reduction, we're looking at pain management. That's an important, yeah, again, a really important distinction yes. between the two and, yeah. yeah, a level of acceptance. and. So you need to assess um, the barriers for moving forwards. Without a willing patient, it's, it's impossible to, to go anywhere. Um, again, there are different ways of uh, categorizing these barriers, but one way of doing it is uh, red, yellow, blue, and, and black flags. Okay, yeah. So uh, we know ab- about red flags. Uh, we've talked about that. So yellow flags are the psychological factors, such as unhelpful beliefs about the pain, coping, stress, anxiety, depression. Some patients are very over-reliant on passive treatments, so they might want things like uh, manipulation, massage, all of which are helpful in the short term, but it's not a long-term option. So you need to assess for for these barriers. Uh, Blue flags are about perceptions, about how work is affecting their pain. So some, some patients might believe that the work that they are in is actually making the pain worse, which means they're less likely to go back to their workplace. And um, black flags are contextual factors, things like patients might have lit- ongoing litigation or secondary gain. They might have some over-solicitous families. So all of these are barriers to rehabilitation. Now, assessing these barriers takes time, and not everybody is at a place where they are willing to engage. In that case, your responsibility is to ensure that they are not coming to harm. They're not coming to harm from unnecessary prescriptions. But if they're at a point where they are willing to engage, then you can take the next step. So you could encourage them to increase the activities in a, in a paced manner. Now, pacing is very important because uh, we sometimes see patients at two extremes. So on one extreme, you have patients who say, I'm in pain, I'm going to do nothing. I'm just going to sit and relax, which is unhelpful. And equally, at the other end of the spectrum, you have patients who say, well, I'm not going to let the pain defeat me. I'm just going to push push through it. But what typically happens is when they push through it, the pain flares up and then they lose their motivation to do things. So pacing is very important. So breaking down tasks into small chunks. So you encourage them to do little and often. So if they're going to start any activities, you say start gently. You should never reach a point where the pain has become so bad that you have to stop. You stop well before the point. And then you can increase whatever you want to do this you know, exercise, walking or any kind of exercise that the patient wants so you can build upon it slowly. It's also important to inform patients that just because they have pushed themselves, it doesn't mean that they're harming themselves. So when they push themselves and it, a pain flares up, nothing's changed in their body. It's just the nervous system which has become oversensitive and doesn't like it. I'm with you, yeah. So uh, if, if they're still struggling, then you could refer them to a psychologically informed physiotherapist or to a, a pain clinic with a multidisciplinary setup. I think it's also important to set expectations when you refer them to anyone. Patients often think that when they go to a physiotherapist, it is to get rid of their pain. And this is probably true for acute pain, but not for chronic pain. So the purpose is to keep patients moving despite the pain. So we make it quite clear that physiotherapy will not affect your pain intensity, although some patients might get some benefit with a reduced muscle spasm. 
and even when patients are referred for uh, for interventions to the pain clinic or um for for medication management i think it's important to tell patients that it's unlikely that the pain clinic will have any more medications than we we can prescribe and that interventions can only help a small minority of patients most patients for most patients interventional treatments don't work but there are a few where they do work that's interesting so i think sometimes when we refer into chronic pain clinics there are um there is an expectation and pa- patients have heard about other people's experiences mm-hmm. and know that there might be some interventions is that something you see often that people will feel like okay what's the next step is there something new to be offered yes so patients do come in with expectations of having an injection yeah and they are they often disappointed when we say that there are no injections that we can offer there are a few patients with very specific focal pain where we can help we can offer interventions like uh, radio frequency innervation but i would say about for the vast majority of patients 90% of patients there are no interventions that we can offer and the um again i'm just thinking about uh patients coming to you um and kind of i feel like you've given a really good overview and kind of empowered clinicians in primary care to think about how to um to reduce medications and get patients moving and and use all of those strategies um so what do you think then if if everyone was doing that very well in primary care what would you be doing in chronic pain clinic that would be different um do you have access to anything else so we are a, a multidisciplinary team so our main job is rehabilitation um so when patients are referred to our uh, to the pain clinic we triage patients accordingly so the ones who are suitable for for rehabilitation they go down a different pathway so they are seen by the physiotherapists psychologists and they might go on to a pain management program or they might have individual work the ones who are suitable for um specialist interventions like uh, like radio frequency denervation or uh, spinal cord stimulation for example then they are seen by the uh, by the medics so it's um, it, it works quite well um, and I, i think secondary care will still have a role to play because there are always going to be patients where who might benefit from interventions so chronic pain is so common and some epidemiological studies say that 35% of of a country is suffering from chronic pain but we don't see 35% of our population knocking on, on the pain clinic doors mm. that's because most patients manage their pain well they self manage then we see a small cohort of patients who attend primary care and from the small cohort of patients they end up in in secondary care so it's the tip of the iceberg yeah really. it's the tip of yeah. the iceberg yeah. really um aware that sometimes when we get letters back from chronic pain t- clinics in fact one of the last ones i saw did tell me to start um pregabalin for patients and it, sometimes you get requests for opioids or gabapentinoids that um don't quite sit well with what we know mm-hmm. about chronic pain um any advice for primary care clinicians in that scenario when they've been sort of told something like that the pain clinic can only offer advice mm-hmm. uh, they can't force you to prescribe and if you think it's not in the patient's best interest then then you don't have to prescribe it having said that sometimes we make pragmatic decisions yeah uh, as pre- i mentioned previously if an occasional dose of codeine is helping patients keep functioning keep them in their job then then i think it's it's acceptable use yeah uh, but for for the vast majority of patients the medications are not helpful thank you that's really useful and i guess before we hit the the end and some of our um kind of common questions that we ask everyone is there anything else that you wanted to highlight about um chronic pain any tips any advice that you want to give um to primary care so i think we've discussed quite a lot but um some of the key points i think would be first of all you need to believe in your patients so 
patients need to feel that that you believe that they are in pain. So you need to explicitly say that you believe that the pain is real. It's not all in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, assure patients that pain is not equal to harm. Activity can hurt, but it will not cause harm. Make it absolutely clear that the pain is chronic and is not going to go away. The other thing is do not focus on non-specific findings such as degeneration on imaging. They don't meet, mean much, but it might make patients feel that there is something dangerous going on. And even if there is something specific like like arthritis, activity and exercise is still helpful. Do not prescribe opiates for daily pain, but occasional use might be acceptable in a certain cohort of patients. Uh, you need to explain that medications are not helpful in chronic pain and at best they will just take the edge off. And in your consultation, focus primarily on functional goals rather than pain relief. And these are my top tips. That's fantastic. That was a great overview of a consultation <laughs> very rapidly. <laughs> um, and are there any specific resources um, that you want to highlight um, for either clinicians or for patients? There are lots of resources. Um, I would like to highlight that the that Healthcare Innovation Manchester is launching a portal for um, for primary care. So it's mainly around opioid reduction, but there are lots of resources on there. And there's also uh, guidance on clinical consultations. For patients, there are lots of resources they can access, uh, like Tame the Beast, Flipping Pain. Um, you could look at the British Pain Society website, uh, the Faculty of Pain Medicine. Uh, there's the Pain Toolkit, which has been used for years. There are lots of resources, and uh, there will be a list of all these resources on the uh, Greater Manchester Hub. Brilliant. Okay. Well, we'll link to as many as we can, or if there's yes. if they're already summarised somewhere, we'll we'll link to that one. Yeah, brilliant. So I think your sort of steps that you just went through in terms of your top tips sounds nearly like your takeaway points from the chat today. Yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to summarise with? No, I, yeah, I think, I think done, we've covered I thought you had. Yeah, yeah. That's perfect. No, well, thank you so, so much for joining us. That was absolutely brilliant. It's really, really You're helpful. welcome. Thank you. So Lisa, it's only about a few minutes really since we've um, spoken to Mahindra. Um, so this will be our kind of initial impressions rather than the, the deeper, uh, more meaningful bits that might occur to us in the, in the days following our, our conversations that we sometimes have. What are your initial learning points? Um, I think um, one of them was um, his explanation of what PN was. Um, I think that was quite nice. Obviously, like it has been um, mentioned before um, and in learning and things that it isn't just um, that pathway and it is that kind of emotional experience and that personal experience of PN. But I just thought he laid out quite well um, and I liked his um, description and, and taking that dive at the beginning into it, um, I think kind of set the scene really well for the rest of it. Um, so that was one big thing that stood out. And then I think the other bit was just about the kind of that positive framing approach um, that seemed to be a theme throughout um, to me that um, it was very much it was trying to gather information and evidence that to then be able to have a positive discussion with the patient around their diagnosis what it meant for them about movement about opiates it all kind of seemed to be about empowering in some way the patient and um, yeah. that was kind of the the theme I got from what he was saying anyway um what what about you yeah it definitely struck me as it definitely struck me as getting out of the loop of uh, assessment and diag- and constantly chasing a diagnosis or like you were saying don't get stuck in the nitty-gritty of um of some of the investigations and the small print in the investigations once you've ruled out um that that's not dangerous to move crack on essentially and empower people to do it like you said so um i thought 
it was nearly strange how much it hit me about the communicating that it's safe to move as a full st- step. It's like, yes, how often do we re- do I really do that? And how often is that really, you know, and that how often is that communication really uh, effective? So when he talked through some of his example ways that he'd give the information or his example questions, that was really, really helpful. I know I'll enjoy listening back to that and, and taking that forward and the whole thing about how to discuss yeah how to discuss chronic pain so starting with what is pain and what is chronic pain and the complete difference between the two of them and um then thinking of the fire alarm i think that would be a really good analogy oh uh, one thing he did say off mic which i said i'd mention on mic because i think i might pinch it is when he was talking about tolerance, sometimes he uses the example of tea and coffee. Ah. So, you know, are you somebody who drinks a lot of tea or a lot of coffee? And, you know, initially when you drink coffee, it affects you a lot. But actually, after not very long, uh, you start sort of not really realizing that it's affecting you. And actually, you know, just kind of using it to stay awake and things like that. So he uses that as a really good analogy to help him to help him communicate the idea of tolerance and actually i can see how that would work with his explanation about um coming off it as well so when you stop when you start coming Mm. off caffeine you feel rubbish um and then it kind of evens out and you're fine without it so yeah that's actually quite a good analogy but uh yeah i think it was just i think it was just a nice approach to chronic pain and you're right it kind of took you away from a kind of very clinical approach which often, as we know, doesn't work very well for these patients because they do, like you said, they get st- stuck in that loop. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just quite refreshing um, to think of it from a different angle and hopefully quite helpful for people out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think having done a, a, a quick um, QI, QI project on gabapentinoid prescribing in my practice and sort of looking at what might work to try and help re- reducing inappropriate prescribing, I thought it was really interesting Um the way he described how it can be actually sometimes the PRN medicines can be more useful if if you're not on that medication all the time than having it a few times a week as your kind of emergency go-to um, can actually be effective. And I thought that might be where people are really stuck on quite high doses. That might be a really good way of, of helping, helping them sort of think about maybe some of the positives of coming down when it is quite scary, when people really are suffering and you're not really offering a huge amount of alternatives in terms of pain medicines. Oh, yeah. The other thing that just occurred to me was um, was that, uh, did I write it down, that it's about um, it's not about pain reduction, it's about pain management, which actually, again, quite a profound statement to me, but I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. never really thought of it that way. Um, yeah. And I can imagine as a patient, that might be quite shocking to you, but I think it would also be again empowering i think it's it would be good to know i think that knowledge is powerful um for for patients to be able to come to terms with um what's happening in their life and then to be able to move forward so yeah i thought that was really interesting yeah so um the idea of acceptance before moving on i do think yeah i think that would in conjunction with really understanding the that there's no damage happening and that movement is useful i think that would be yeah like you say just so makes such a huge difference to people's lives yeah um so thanks so much for listening and right to the way to the end we hope you've got a lot from listening to the episode um it's a slightly 
tricky area so if there are points of feedback that you'd like to share with us please do we've got the surveys or the email uh, that's always in the episode description and yeah if you'd like to tweet us please feel free to and please share with friends if you're liking this and so yeah thanks for listening till next time on primary care knowledge beast This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in 2023. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees' opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast.